making rules for other people is pretty easy, especially as a parent if you're making rules for your children. It happens all the time. Don't touch that. Or stop spitting your food. Stay in bed. Stop jumping your defenseless brother from behind. <laughs> Some of the things we have to make rules for are mind-boggling. Never expect it. But even if you're not a parent, I think making rules for other people is pretty easy for us. I mean, siblings love doing it for their brothers or sisters, trying to get them to follow their rules. Even if, if it's only in our mind or imagination, we like making up rules that we think everyone else should follow and live by. However, I think making good and appropriate and unselfish rules and then being consistent in enforcing them is another matter altogether. Right? Making your rules is easy. But making them good and then enforcing them right is another matter. Which makes me really marvel at the rules that God set out for man to obey in his word. In the law, especially laid out for us at the beginning of the Bible and the Torah or Mosaic law, the first five books of the Bible, the Bible tells us that not only is the law good, the Bible says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul in Psalm 19. And not only is the law of the Lord perfect, God is also perfectly consistent in demanding obedience to the law, and then he is perfectly just in disciplining or punishing when his law is disobeyed. It's really a marvel when you think about it. However, not many topics have created more confusion amongst Christians than the law. Right? We know well, as Christians, that we are not under law, but we're under grace. But most of us don't really understand what that means for us. What does it mean that we're not under law, but under grace? Sometimes we tend to look down on the law as an inferior or even extinct or defunct part of Scripture. We tend to always skip over those books in our devotional times, right? What are we supposed to do with the law, with Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, as Christians who believe that the whole Bible is inspired and true. What are we supposed to do? I mean, should we be trying to follow all the rules of the law? Should we be trying to follow some of them? None of them? And what's the right answer? I mean, I'm sure that I've got more Bible training than almost all of us here, but I'll admit, sometimes the law and the way it applies to us confuses me too. It can confuse us. But if these are God's very words to us, as we believe they are, then it is utterly important that we take the time to understand and apply and understand the purpose of the law and how it does or does not apply to our lives. It's very important. Besides, it's not like we get to the New Testament and the law gets ignored or dismissed. In fact, Jesus had some very revealing words about the law himself, which we're going to study today as we turn again to the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me there now. Luke chapter 16. 
page 875, if you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you. But I want you to be able to see these words for yourself, what Jesus says. And today brings us to a short but powerful little passage of Jesus' teaching. And I want to pray as we begin, before we read this, that it makes a powerful change in our lives today. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look into your word once again today, I pray that you would open our eyes anew to your wonders, to your glory, to your love for us. I pray that as we see these words, that our hearts would be captured by what they say, that we would be convicted of sin, drawn to our knees, and then lifted up once again gloriously by grace. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this word. We pray that it makes a difference in our lives today. Help us to know how to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's passage, Luke 16, is very much a continuation from last week's story. So to refresh our memories, if you weren't with us, okay, Jesus was talking to his disciples at this time about wealth, about the things we own. And he, in the beginning part of chapter 16, he told a rather confusing parable about a corrupt, dishonest manager who lost his job. Okay? And, but this manager also did something else, at the same time wise, to look after his own future. Okay? So he was corrupt, but he was wise. And Jesus was saying, his point was, that my followers need to learn to be wise in looking after their futures. Okay? And, and our future lies primarily in eternity with Christ. That's our future as believers in Christ. So Jesus told us, look at your lives now and live for then. So use your wealth now for eternal purposes. It's much more important. Use our money and possessions in light of our impending deaths and our eternal life. It's far greater. And and then we saw why being faithful stewards of our wealth was so important to Jesus. And as we saw, it says our wealth tends to compete with our devotion to God. Jesus said this in verse 13. He said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So in other words, our money will either be our servant or it will become our master. It will either be a tool, or it will become an idol. Now, these are sobering words for us, who live in a very affluent, materialistic culture. But these would have been shocking, offensive words to some who overheard Jesus on that day. Playing the role of antagonists, as usual, were the Pharisees. Look what it says in verse 14. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now, Pharisees are well known as self righteous, religious, or judgmental, legalists, all these things, but we don't usually think of them as lovers of money. But Luke says they are here. They were lovers of money. And their love for money deafened their ears to the truth of what Jesus was saying. 
Luke says they ridiculed him because of what he said. So he says, you cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Other versions say they scoffed or they sneered at him. They're like, give me a break. Right? What a load of baloney. You certainly can serve God in money. Just look at us. Okay, sure, we've got lots of money. But we also serve God very faithfully. We can do both. It's not a false dichotomy, what they're saying. But Jesus' words were totally true. Wealth inevitably competes with our devotion to God. And we have to be super careful to not let it become an idol in our lives. There are a number of warning signs that can tell us if we become lovers of money. If we're often anxious about our finances, not trusting God to provide for us. That's a warning sign. If our work monopolizes our time, taking away from our family or from God. If our thoughts are consumed by things that we want to buy, or maybe things we covet that other people have. If we complain about what we don't have more often than we're grateful for what we do. If we find it difficult or even impossible to tithe or give money to God's work. These are, these are signs that we might love money and its ability to give us security or power, pleasure, or whatever. Only God can truly give us those things we desperately desire. Money never can. It will always disappoint. J.C. Ryle, though, says that the Pharisees were doing exactly what many people try to do. We, we often try to do this. He says, thousands on every side are continually trying to do the thing which Christ pronounces impossible. They are endeavoring to be friends of the world and friends of God at the same time. Their consciences are so far enlightened that they feel they must have some religion, but their affections are so chained down to earthly things that they never come up to the mark of being true Christians. And hence, they live in a state of constant discomfort. They have too much religion to be happy in the world, and they have too much of the world in their hearts to be happy in their religion. Oh, God would break the chains of our hearts. Break us away from that. Uh, unite our affections to him. Here in Luke 16, we quickly see that there was something else with the Pharisees. There was something underlying their scoffing and their love of money. Really, these were surface issues of a heart condition. And their heart condition, as we've often seen, was self-righteousness, or Jesus is going to say self-justification. This is what was going on in their heart. They thought they were pretty good and religious people. They were righteous, and they were above reproach. And they felt that Jesus' words were aimed at them. Well, if the shoe fits, look how Jesus responds to the Pharisees' ridicule. He goes straight to their hearts. Verse 15, And he said to them, 
You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The the Pharisees were trying so hard to justify themselves before men. In other words, they wanted other people to see them as righteous and good and holy. So they kept as many rules as they could. They followed the law better than anyone else. Faithful tithing, rigorous Sabbath keeping, never eating unclean food, performing all the rituals they had to do to stay ceremonially clean. But then Jesus comes along and and starts preaching all about their hearts. That it's not about all these outward actions. It's about your heart. That what God really cares about is what's inside of you. We can clean up all nicely on the outside, but be all dirty on the inside. That we can be very self-justified and esteemed by many people. But God sees our hearts. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What is the big idea that Jesus is trying to communicate here? Simply this. Okay, first point. God's standard for righteousness is different than ours. Okay? God's standard of righteousness was very different from the Pharisees. Likewise, it is often vastly different than our own. I think I know, I think most of you understand what I'm saying here, but just in case you don't, let me give you an example. Okay, I am five feet, ten and a half inches tall. Okay, pretty average height for a guy. But let's say I had a bit of an inferiority complex about my height, and I really wished I was taller. I wanted to be taller. And so I start telling people, okay, I'm not five ten, I'm seven feet tall. Now, of course, no one would believe me, right? But what if I pulled out a tape measure, say, here, I'll prove it to you. Measure me with this. Okay, and you stand it up and you measure me, and sure enough, it says I'm seven feet tall. Okay? At first, you'd be confused, right? Like, how could that say he's seven feet tall? Obviously, he's not seven feet tall, but then you have a closer look at the measuring tape. And notice that I had modified things a bit. (laughs) That on my measuring tape, things don't, a foot is not 12 inches, it's 10 inches. Now, on this measuring tape, a foot equals 10 inches. So according to my standards that I've made, I really would be 7 feet tall. Okay? I am 7 feet according to this measuring tape. But, of course... My standard is totally wrong, right? There is a universal standard of what equals a foot. 12 inches, not 10. We could simply pull out any correct ruler or measuring tape and prove me wrong, simply by using the right standard. But when it comes to our faith in God and our righteousness, we have a tendency to try to develop our own standards, to develop our own standards of what is acceptable, or good, or righteous. We modify the measuring tapes. And predictably, this requires lowering the standards that God's already given us. Always does. We never raise them. We want to see ourselves as good people. We want others to see us 
as good people. And we want to be liked and respected and esteemed. So we set our standards at an achievable level, a reachable place. And then we try hard to live up to that standard. We lower God's standards, though. We lower God's standards when it comes to what is or is not acceptable language. Or what classifies as lust. Or how angry we can become. Or what gossip is. Or what qualifies as generous giving. Or or what it means to be a Christian. And when we easily attain to our man-made standards, we have successfully justified ourselves. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They thought they had faithfully kept the whole law of God. People looked up to them. They knew these guys took their faith seriously. They were good people. But if they truly understood God's standard, what God intended all along, they would have known that that was impossible. They couldn't live up to that. It is absolutely impossible to justify yourself to make yourself good or righteous. The Pharisees looked good to themselves and other people, but to God, not so much. And what God thinks of us is infinitely more important than what other people think. The reality is, God has a completely different standard than us, and he sees into our hearts. His standard for righteousness is actually impossible us to reach. It's unattainable. Can't get there. Because in order for us to be truly righteous in God's sight, in order for us to be holy, we'd have to be perfect. We'd have to follow all 613 laws in the Mosaic law flawlessly. Not just outwardly, but also inwardly. In our hearts. You realize how impossible that is? James 2.10 tells us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. That means that if you've ever told one lie, you've broken the whole law. By Jesus' standards, if you've ever had one lustful glance, you've broken the law. If you've ever hated someone, stolen anything, gotten unrighteously angry, you're guilty. And we don't like this very much, but any sin, big or little, is disgusting in God's sight. Verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, I don't know if you were shocked when you read this, but this is pretty startling. What the world calls good and celebrates and exalts is abominable 
in God's sight. And we don't use the word abomination very often because it's so strong and severe. It's a word that denotes disgust or revulsion, that something stinks. And Jesus says the things that we often see as good may be abominable underneath. And Jesus may have been referring to the love of money here. Uh, we're not sure exactly. He may have been referring to the, the Pharisees' self-righteous pride or even to the Pharisees themselves. The point was, they thought they were good, but their hearts actually repulsed God. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This should be a really strong warning to us. Be very wary of approving what our world approves of. Be very wary. Whether that be a person, uh, a politician, musician, athlete, actor, celebrity, or maybe a book or a movie or a song or other form of entertainment or art, or a popular philosophy or belief, action and attitude... Now, this verse does not mean that everything the world ever puts out will be bad. Okay, not at all. There is still beauty in the world as God's creation. And we all have the image of God within us. So there will be redeemable aspects of many things the world exalts. We've just got to be really careful. Okay? Not all that glitters in our eyes is gold in God's. Some things that are exalted by our world are abominations to God. Some things just shouldn't ever be laughed about. Sin isn't funny. Being famous doesn't automatically make someone worthy of respect or admiration. Ambition isn't necessarily good. Pursuing your dreams can become idolatrous. Money is definitely exalted in our world. But the love of money is disgusting to God. Tolerance isn't always a virtue. Pride is never good. Especially when it's pride about being sinful. God's standards are often vastly different than ours. So never just go along with the flow of our culture. Be very cautious for what you approve of or praise. Always bring things under the microscope of God's word to see if it is good or godly. Now in people heard Jesus' words, they were probably pretty confused by them. I mean, they saw the Pharisees around actively keeping the law the best they could. They were doing their absolute best. They, had, they were seemingly the most righteous people around. But then Jesus comes along and says, the Pharisees aren't even close to being righteous. 
So if, if that was the case, if the most righteous people around weren't close to being righteous, what hope could anyone have of ever being righteous in God's sight? What was the hope for them? I mean, Jesus' words are actually pretty depressing in verse 15 when you think about them. We can't justify ourselves. If, if perfection is God's standard, we're all doomed. Well, it's a good thing Jesus doesn't end there. So he continues. He explains more about the law and, and how his standards are so different, but he also hints at the good news of how we can be found righteous before God. And the second point for today from the second half of this passage is kind of just a restatement from the first, but it's, uh, it also expands a bit. So the first point was God's standard of righteousness is different. In order to be righteous, that we've got to keep the law perfectly inside and out. But second, God's standard for keeping the law is also different than ours. God's standard for keeping the law is also different than ours. In verse 16, Jesus tries to clear up this confusion people must have had at this point about the law. And he says this, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. And just a couple explanations there. The law and the prophets were often used to refer to the entire Old Testament. Okay, the entire Hebrew Bible was the law and the prophets. And then the John Jesus speaks of here is, of course, John the Baptist, his cousin and forerunner. So what Jesus was saying is the law was set up for a time as a temporary provision that the Jew, that would take the Jewish people up until the time of the Messiah. But now that John the Baptist had come, more so now that Jesus had come, a new era had dawned. A new beginning. A new time. The, the era of the law had passed, and the era of the kingdom had come. It says the law and the prophets were until John... Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. So Jesus was inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth. We've seen this a number of times in Luke. He was returning God's rightful rule and reign to the world. Jesus would be king. The kingdom then, at this time, was, and still is, a spiritual kingdom over hearts and souls. Right now, the kingdom of God is among us over our hearts if we're his followers. But one day, the kingdom will be over everything, spiritual and physical. Jesus' life, though, marked a major, major shift in human history. It was a complete game changer. As we've seen, the law, as good and as perfect as it was, ultimately only brought bad news. But the kingdom brought gloriously good news. Can't have one without the other. But the kingdom brought gloriously good news, which, which John and then Jesus, Jesus himself and Jesus' disciples were preaching everywhere. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. 
So what was this good news of the kingdom of God? Well, the good news was all about Jesus. That the Messiah had come. That heaven's king had come to earth. That he would be the only truly righteous person in history and would fulfill the law. That he was on his way at this moment to Jerusalem to die for people's sins against the law. And then that he would rise again to life to reign forever as savior of the world. And that through his life, we would be able to be justified before God. Where the Pharisees and everyone else in history fell short. Jesus didn't. And even though our sin disgusted him, his overwhelming love compelled him. And Jesus died for our abominations. He essentially became an abomination. So that we could be justified before God. So that we could be forgiven. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God. And now if we believe in him turning from our sins, God sees us as righteous. He justifies us. Romans 4 says, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The good news, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, tells us that we can, in fact, keep the law. Okay? Not on our own power. Not on our own, not our own good works. But by faith, we can be justified by God because Christ perfectly kept the law on our behalf. Isn't that great news? We need to do whatever it takes to enter into the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said in verse 16 that Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. This does not mean that someone can enter the kingdom by their own effort, that they could literally force Jesus to save them. No, not at all. This statement likely simply meant many people are eager to get in on this. They're flocking to it. They're bursting through the doors. They're doing whatever they need to do to follow me. They're counting the cost. They're denying themselves. They're taking up their cross. A couple summers ago, my wife and I went with her sister and brother-in-law on a trip to Boston. And when we were there as baseball fans, we, of course, visited the famous historic ballpark there, Fenway Park. And... We had heard good things about the guided tour of the ballpark. And so we wanted to make sure while we were there, we wanted to get in on this tour. And we only had one afternoon that we could take the tour. 
That was the only chance we had. But as we traveled across the city to try to get there, we realized that traffic and the trolley, things just weren't working out for us. We were not going to get there in time. We were running out of time for the final tour of the day. And boy, were we given the runaround. We ended up getting off the trolley and running to the ballpark, only to be told when we got there that the tour had already started. Well, we didn't take no for an answer, so we were told to check another place for last-minute tickets. We ran there, only to be sent running to another a little gift shop where we were finally given tickets. We got the tickets, then we had to run back to the gate where we were reluctantly let in, and then we had to run to catch up to the tour. Luckily, only about five minutes into the tour. It was... <laughs> We were worn out, but we ended up thoroughly enjoying our time. And we were glad that we had put in the effort into making the tour, even though we were given the runaround. Jesus was basically like here. This is how people should be trying to get into the kingdom. Okay? Run! Don't walk! Okay? Run to Christ! You don't want to miss this opportunity. The era has changed. You can't get in through the law. Okay? Run. Do whatever it takes. Do you think the time is now? The time is short. You got to get in. And then he was like, and, and just in case you misunderstand what I'm saying about the law, okay, I'm fulfilling the law's purpose. But that doesn't mean the law is now meaningless. doesn't mean it's just defunct. Verse 17, look what he says. We'll go back to verse 16 so we get the context. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So as... Part of God's perfect word, the law stands eternal and unchangeable. It is not void, and it never will be void. So don't just cut those pages out of your Bible. Don't just skip over them. Okay? Jesus says, be easier for you to destroy the world than to destroy the law. It says, not even one dot in the law will ever pass away. Not a dot over an I or a cross of a T or a period or a comma will ever disappear. The law stands eternal. Now, you might wonder, well, what about the strange and weird laws in there? They serve a purpose. Okay? The purpose of the law in its entirety is to point us to Jesus. That's the purpose of the law. We can't follow the law perfectly, and we shouldn't try to live as though the law still applies to us. We definitely should never treat it as a way to salvation. We are not under the law. But the law is there for a very good reason, to show us our desperate need for a salvation that can only be fulfilled in Christ. The great reformer, Martin Luther, said this. He says, the commandments, speaking of the law, the commandments teach and prescribe many good works, but this does not mean that they are fulfilled by us. They give good instructions, but no assistance. 
They teach what man should do, but give no power to do it. Hence, they are only fitted to show a man his own incapacity for goodness and to make him learn to doubt himself. Then comes the other word, the divine promise, the covenant which says, if you would fulfill all the commandments and escape from your evil passions and sins as the commandments urge and require, lo, believe on Christ. In him, I promise that you will find all the needful grace, righteousness, peace, and freedom. It's in him that we find our righteousness, not ourselves. Now Jesus ends this little section of his teaching in a way that seems kind of out of place to us. I'm going to look at it in a sec, but while it may seem fairly strange to us, it would have made perfect sense to the Pharisees. Jesus basically gave one example of how different God's standards are than ours. He could have used many examples, but he chose to focus on one. He says this in verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, I hope I didn't blindside you with that. I don't want to do that. But we might think, where in the world did this come from? Jesus hasn't been talking about marriage at all lately. Talk about money a lot, not marriage. But like I said, this was an example of everything that Jesus had been talking about. One example. God's standards of righteousness and for keeping the law are vastly different than ours. For example, his standard for marriage is vastly different than ours. And Jesus knew that this would be another particular problem for the Pharisees. They had misinterpreted and misapplied the laws of marriage and divorce all the time. They had actually, rabbis say, they had relaxed God's standards for marriage so far that they had allowed men to divorce their wife if only she cooked a poor meal or if they saw someone prettier. But God had established a standard for marriage all the way back in the Garden of Eden, beginning of creation. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We see that spelled out as one man and one woman faithfully and joined together for life. This was God's definition of marriage, his very high standard. And boy, is it ever different from our world's constantly changing standards for marriage. One man and one woman, or one man and one man, or one woman and one woman, or, or maybe three or four more or more people in one committed relationship, people faithfully or not so faithfully and joined together for life, or until it's no longer convenient, or you fall out of love, or you have irreconcilable differences 
or whenever you just want out. God's standards are so divergent from ours. And marriage is one excellent example of this. Now I need to clarify a few very important things here. First, biblically, divorce and remarriage aren't always wrong. Okay, We know this from the Bible. Jesus even gives it. There are biblical grounds for divorce and allowances for remarriage. And Jesus says elsewhere that if a spouse is unfaithful, divorce is acceptable. Okay? Or if an unbelieving spouse deserts you, divorce is okay. That's about it, though. It says elsewhere, remarriage is perfectly okay or even encouraged after the death of a spouse. Okay, that's good. And if divorce was permissible according to the Bible, then remarriage is also permissible. So, if, so divorce and remarriage aren't always wrong. On the other hand, they often are wrong. Our world would scoff at this, big time. Right? Divorce is more than perfectly acceptable in our culture. Oftentimes it's encouraged. But the Bible says that God hates divorce. It, it pains his heart. It's so far from what he intended. That marriage is sacred. It's meant to be permanent. Jesus takes it very seriously. He's the one who said, What God has joined together, let not man separate. We should never break sacred vows that we make before God. It's a covenant. Can't break a covenant. Now let me... Let me speak to those of you who are divorced or remarried for a minute, because hearing verses like this, especially from Jesus, can be very difficult to hear. It is hard for me to say this as well. Okay, But if you didn't have biblical grounds for divorce, then that divorce was sinful and wrong. And if you got remarried after that, essentially adding a sin to a sin. However, if you have sinned, please, please remember that there is forgiveness available for any and every sin. There is mercy, that through the blood of Christ, you can be freed from your guilt, and that you can walk in freedom from any condemnation regarding your sin. That if Christ has forgiven you, you never need to feel guilty ever again. Okay? Kevin DeYoung provides some wise counsel here and for all of us, or who are married or ever were married, and I echo his thoughts, maybe even those who are considering marriage one day. It's a longer quote, but it addresses three distinct groups of individuals. DeYoung says this, To the married, stay married. 
Guard your marriage. Don't think you are above falling. Don't think you are above temptation. Pray together. Take walks together. Get away from the kids to be together. There are few things more precious in life than your marriage. Do not take it for granted. And if you are contemplating divorce, please talk to someone. Please don't give up. If you have biblical grounds for divorce, consider what glory it might be to God to patiently work toward reconciliation. And if you don't have biblical grounds, consider what offense it will be to God to break the promises you have made in his name. Consider the harm to your kids. Stay married. Second group, to the divorced and single. If you had grounds for a divorce, we want no one to look down on you. If you have been sinned against, we do not want to treat you as the sinner. We do not want you to run from the church, but to find grace and fellowship here. If you're divorced, but shouldn't be, can you find hope in your heart that God might be able to reconcile you and your spouse? It would be a great trophy of his grace to bring you two back together. If that doesn't happen, don't get remarried. Don't think you can always repent later. You never know. The next time you blatantly sin may be the time the Lord gives you over to the hardness of your heart and puts you beyond the pale. Third group, to those who have sinfully divorced, to those whose sin caused the divorce, to those who are now remarried when you shouldn't be. Run to the cross. It is not a light thing to tear asunder what God joined together. It is no small mistake to pursue an adulterous second marriage. But God's grace is not light, and it is not small. Divorce is not the impardonable sin. There is mercy yet for you, but the contrition must be real. The admission of guilt must be honest. The repentance must be earnest. A broken heart and a contrite spirit the Lord will never deny. Run to God. Plead with God. Know his adopting love. Experience again his justifying free grace. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty state. Indeed, sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. God's grace is not light, and it is not small. Thank God that his ways are not our ways, that his ways are higher than ours. You know that saying, his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are above our thoughts. You know where that's from or what it's talking about? You know, we hear it a lot and we think, well, I think it's talking about maybe God's power so much far above ours and his wisdom or his sovereignty, his strength, something like that. But the passage where that saying comes from is actually talking about God's grace. You know that? It's from Isaiah 55, verses 6 to 9, and it says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our standards for righteousness are pretty low. So are our standards often for giving grace to others. But God's standards are higher. And his standard for righteousness is higher. But so is his grace far higher than ours. To reach down to broken sinners like you and me. Return to the Lord today and he will have compassion on you. And abundantly pardon you. For his ways are higher than ours. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to the earth to live the life we can't live, to die the death we deserve, and to give us life that we never deserve. We thank you for your grace that though we have sinned, we have become abominations in your sight, that you freely choose to love us and lavish your mercy on us and your grace, and to make us righteous, and to make us your children, to make us your friends. I pray that we would never cheapen your grace, never take it for granted. May it impact us every moment of every day. In Jesus' name, amen.